This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 18th of May, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, it seems like the debts and deficit megaphone has been put into storage for the time being, and we have a good look at the federal government's budget and the budget reply from the opposition. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Tim Wilson's personal trainer. Our new book, Politics, Process, Pandemic, it's only been released for a few weeks, David, but it's already selling like hotcakes in a bakery. And it's available at a wide range of online bookstores in ebook and paperback format. And you can also purchase it directly from us at our website, newpolitics.com.au. It's a wrap-up of the big year in Australian politics last year. It's only $29.95. That's the cost of around five or six lattes or a couple of Chardonnays at an inner-city wine bar. And to all of our regular contributors, if you contribute $50 or more, we'll send out a free copy of the book to you. Now, whichever way you look at it, especially during this budget week, it's very, very good value for money. It, it is great value for money. Uh, I'm really thrilled with how it's been moving. It was a very important year. I think things have changed in ways that we haven't been able to detect yet. And when we were going through the final edits and things, and remembering back just what happened in the year, the seismic shift is apparent and it's laid very good groundwork for what may happen in the next one to five years. The government has released its budget and like most budgets, it's the act of producing a set of figures that results in the most favourable political outcome using addition, subtraction and division and a little bit of deflection to create the numbers that bamboozle the public and create the impression that there's something in it for everyone. The mainstream media is always there to help out, pushing the image that this is a big spending budget when it's actually not. Government spending is actually down by 12% from $660 billion last year to $589 billion in 2022. The media has also been pushing the idea that this is a budget that the Labor Party would have introduced, even though this is nothing like a Labor budget. And conservative economic commentators have been lining up to explain why debts and deficits that were so awful under the Labor government a decade ago are perfectly acceptable under a Liberal government, even though government debt is three times greater. The budget was released just over a week ago, and we've decided to spend a little bit of time to have a good look at the details. And overall... In our opinion, the government didn't really have a choice. They had to spend and go into high deficits, but it seems to be an ineffective level of spending, and that spending is going into the wrong areas. It's always the case with the the Liberal Party, particularly from 2013, that it doesn't know how to spend money. Now, let's be fair. Budgets are rough estimates, um, sometimes based on good data, if Department X cost $300 million to run last year and there's been no significant policy change, you can assume that it'll cost $300 million to run this year. Of course, things happen. You know, uh, Harold Macmillan, you know, what is it like being Prime Minister? Events, dear boy. Nobody really forecast the pandemic of last year and this year. It hasn't ended yet. Nobody really forecast China stopping its exports to Australia and imports from Australia. 
you know, the Whitlam government didn't forecast Cyclone Tracy because they couldn't. I'm trying to think of other major events that come from seemingly nowhere that governments try and anticipate, but often you can't. Donald Rumsfeld, the uh, Secretary of State for Bush, was lampooned for talking about known unknowns and unknown unknowns. But he was absolutely right. In an, in, when you're doing these types of highly analytical predictions, there's all types of things that can happen. Now, having said that, it's a budget that seems to have not made allowance for very much except trying not to borrow as much. Now, this isn't a bad thing, but where they've cut it from, of course, is the needy, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor, a good couple of tax hikes and the reduction of payments to things like private education and private contractors doing uh, border control would go a long way to improving the state of affairs in Australia. But they're not prepared to do that. Well, we did refer to this before, but the government didn't really have any options when it came to implementing large deficits and large government debts. But they do have choices about how they spend the funding that's available to them. Money has been filtering through to many areas of the economy And for well over a decade, the Liberal and the National parties have scored huge political points against the Labor Party about debts and deficits and egged on, of course, by their friends in the media. But these political attacks can't work anymore if the Liberal Party itself is the creator of these debts and deficits. Now, we've outlined in previous podcasts how this whole debts and deficits argument or attacks doesn't actually make it didn't make any economic sense when Labor was in office. And it's quite a ridiculous argument today. Governments need to go into debt and have huge deficits according to the economic circumstances. But in the lead up to the next election campaign, do you think we'll end up seeing the government try out their line about who do you trust on debts and deficits? Absolutely, that's where they're going to go. It's all they've got, really. Labor spend it irresponsibly and give it to all the types of people you don't not like. I suspect there's a bit of a narrative going on. I haven't watched Sky, people like Paul Murray and um, uh, the others, but I suspect there's a bit of a narrative going on about how there's the undeserving unemployed who just sit around not working. And there are, they're called liberal donors. (laughs) But talking about the 8 or 6% unemployed who have decided to go on the dole because it's, quote, free money. The economy has been set up since the late 80s, maybe, that they, they don't want full employment. Uh, full employment drives wages up because, you know, workers become in demand very quickly and drives productivity up and corporations pay more taxes and it's all types of silly things like that. Even though it's totally uh, ridiculous, they like 4 or 5% unemployment just so that there's a pool of workers who aren't working They say it keeps expenses down too, which is not really the case. I'm not going to go into an analysis of this in detail, but we know this is true. But my point is uh, that they're pushing that line. A lot of this deficit is being taken by unemployed people without really looking at one who created the unemployed and why did they do it. I think that we're heading towards a narrative of you can only trust Scott Morrison and uh, Josh Frydenberg to manage the debt and deficit. You can't trust Anthony Albanese. Whereas with Bill Shorten, it was how unlikable he was and questions on his character. You know, the whole, I just don't like him. I think with Albanese, it's going to be, I just don't trust him to be able to do the job. 
Well, I guess that's how the political process goes for for sure for all sides of politics anyway. But the budget deficit in 2022, it will be $161 billion and it's falling to $57 billion in 2025. That's the government prediction. And national government debt will be $617 billion next year and peaking at $980 billion in 2025. So that's close to a trillion dollars. And that's around 40% of GDP. The government has been very keen to point out that this is low by international standards, which is actually very true. If, you can, if, you, if you've got the ability to service those debts and deficits quite well, well, it's not really a big issue. It's not really a problem. And that's one thing that we've pointed out quite frequently within this podcast. But it's just that they weren't so forgiving when the Labor government had a debt-to-GDP ratio of only 5%. So it just seems like they're developing this narrative that, as you mentioned, that the Liberal debt is good, but the Labor debt is bad. The right-wing economists will come out with the thing that centre and left-wing economists have been saying for years, that most households run a deficit while you're paying off a mortgage uh, and personal loans and things. They were told, oh, no, no, it's much more complex than that. You know, Governments need to run at a profit now that they can't run at a profit. And like many other things, he hasn't forecast a budget surplus. I think Joe Hockey forecast one in two years or something, which was never going to happen. Frydenberg can't really state when a surplus is going to happen uh, because it's probably a good 10 or 12 years down the track, probably six or eight years under uh, the uh, Swan budget. And Wayne Swan, of course, was probably Australia's last good treasurer uh, and great treasurer because they steered Australia away from the GFC. And this can't be overstated how important that was. Whereas Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison and Joe Hockey have steered us right into a, another global recession. Well, budgets, of course, they're about economics and accounting and making sure all the figures add up. But budget announcements, they're all about the politics and it's about putting forward a positive spin on each announcement and creating a deceptive headline. And one example of this was when Frydenberg made the announcement that the Mgality migraine drug is no longer going to cost $6,800 per year, but $41.30 per script, conflating a large number with a small number. Now, this is actually a natural move that once a drug is listed on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, it becomes much cheaper. But the announcement made it seem like something that was previously costing $6,800 is now only going to cost $41, thanks to a benevolent government. But it's actually nothing like this. Now, for sure that you know that is a large reduction in cost it will end up costing around three and a half thousand dollars per year rather than six thousand eight hundred dollars and that's a 50 percent reduction that's fantastic news for migraine sufferers but it's not an accurate representation there's also other factors in play where Frydenberg mentioned that the NDIS will be fully Mm. funded but last week before the budget was announced the Minister for Government Services, Linda Reynolds, she started priming the public by announcing that the NDIS scheme will cost more than the Medicare system within the next three years. So there is a level of doublespeak here. This is a government that's never been keen on the idea of the NDIS, primarily because of their ideological opposition to such a scheme, and also because it's a scheme that the Labor Party introduced. And I'd suggest that what they will do is they'll keep it in place because it's politically difficult to remove, but they'll probably make cutbacks to it in the future for as long as they stay in government, of course, or turn it into a privatised venture that mainly benefits vested interests. Yeah, the NDIS was one of Julia Gillard's great policies. 
any policy that genuinely helps the disadvantage is a good policy, provided it genuinely helps the disadvantage. Part of the reason they hate it is because it was a Julia Gillard initiative and they just, of all the prime ministers, they hate Julia Gillard the most. Now, I've been critical of Julia Gillard, some of her policies in the past. I will be critical of them in the future, but she did have, like nearly every prime minister till recently, some really great policies that improved Australia. And they they obviously want to get rid of it. The bizarre thing is, too, is that if Frydenberg had said, look, we've managed to reduce the cost of this medication by 50% for the year, that would have been enough, I would have thought. Sure, it'd be great to take it down to to nothing, but there are all kinds of uh, factors that would prevent that. And that's okay. But I'd have thought a, it's now 50% cheaper for this vital medication that people need would have been a great headline. And hard for people to say, oh, well, you could have spent more on it because then you can do, well, what do you cut then? What other medications do we take off? They still have a tin ear on how to do this stuff. Well, I guess if you do have a look at that headline number, that it's the perception is that something is costing $6,800 and now it's only $41.30. So that's what the perception is, even though oh. the reality is quite different. But there's also other factors in the budget as well. So aged care is receiving $17 billion extra over the next four years, but most of that is in years two, three and four. So it's not necessarily for next year. They also made the announcement that there will be $10 per day per resident extra, but there's no additional regulations or there's no quality standards that will be implemented. And, and I'd say there's probably going to be some increase in the quality of care and the quality of nutritional quality and those sorts of issues for aged care residents. But these increases are likely to go into the pockets of owners and shareholders, such as Kerry Stokes, who owns a $100 million share in the Estier Group. So nothing is likely to be improved in this sector un- unless there's wholesale reform of this sector. I, I really think that it should be nationalised. Or at least a basic standard of excellence should be nationalised. If people want to pay more for even extra, I think fine. I don't. I don't think we should stop that if they can afford it. But I think that the the standards are too low. This is not to run down a lot of the staff and even a lot of the nursing homes, some of which are excellent. And a lot of the staff work very hard under very trying and ill-paid circumstances to bring excellent service to their people. But there's a long way to go. And I think, yeah, basically taking private corporations out or regulating them a lot harder than they are, even to the point where you discourage them because they can't make the type of money they're making. And then ensuring that you have an equal standard. And this is true, too, of education. This is true, too, of every privatized industry that once was nationalized and was working. We need to break down the corporations from what they don't do well and you know, take them back to what they do do well. And some of this funding that is going into aged care, it's actually, it's just replacing money that was taken away several years ago. Similar sort of situation in mental health where Headspace is having funding return to it after the cutbacks in 2018. But I guess we shouldn't be nitpicking too much. Like to have that money coming back is a good sign, but it shouldn't have been taken away in the first place. And this was also considered to be a women's budget as well. There's $1.1 billion allocated for women's safety issues. Now, that's 
Absolutely fantastic news. And there's also the promise of a 2% home deposit scheme for single mothers and families fleeing from domestic violence. Now, good luck getting that deposit in the stamp duty if you can. It's better, again, it's better to have this sort of policy than not have it, but it's unlikely to assist very many women. And this is is the thing that I call the flare policy, where political parties or governments, maybe oppositions as well, they shoot it up in the sky for everyone to see. And the electorate might think that they could benefit from it. Or for those people that don't directly benefit from it or feel that they won't benefit from it, they feel that the women who really do need the support will receive it. But at the end of the day, it assists very few people. So it's a bit of a headline scheme. So, And one of those programs similar to this in the past was the JobMaker program, which was announced as a creator of 450,000 jobs, but only created 1,000 new jobs a year later. So a big headline, but no delivery. And I think that the 2% deposit scheme will probably go down the same path. And the other thing that I noticed in relation to this whole idea of this being the women's budget is the reintroduction of the women's budget statement. That's a statement that the Hawke government introduced back in 1984. Tony Abbott, as the Minister for Women, removed it in 2014. But after all of the rape allegations against ministers and the government staffers and the March for Justice campaign earlier on this year, a government which has shown no commitment at all to women and after the perception and the reality that the Liberal Party is a political game of blokes and their mates, the government reintroduces the women's budget statement. You, you can't get any more cynical than, than this, really. It was a statement read by Susan Lay, and at least it wasn't Melissa Price or Michaelia Cash. That would have made it even worse. If I can just go back to the 2% home loan, 2% of $500,000, which is an inner city unit, is about $10,000. That's a lot of money if you're a single mother with not a lot of income, assuming you you can save that in three years, and no doubt there are people around who will do that, that still gives you a mortgage. And I haven't factored in stamp duties and I haven't factored in of $490,000, which is massive. Getting ahead, building your equity in that is going to be very difficult. The interest rates, which will inevitably go up, they might go up in 10 years, they might go up next year, we don't know, is going to hurt badly. And it's only for 10,000 people over four years. I think only 2,500 lenders can get this each year. So it's, again, a very poorly thought through policy. The supposed aim of it is to be commended. Yes, let's help women who've been forced out of their home get into another home, but it's not going to work. As for it being a women's budget, you're right, the, the cynicism in it is almost unbelievable. He appointed a prime minister for women, and you'd have thought that the hiding he got for that I mean, that wasn't her official title, but that's essentially what he said. And it was like appointing Tony Abbott as Minister for Women. If you sort of squinted and looked at it from the right angle, you could maybe sort of see what they were trying to do, possibly. But it should never have got past the how about we do this stage. Everyone should have had a good laugh and said, no, seriously, who should we put in? And it's the same thing here. They really don't know how to deal with women, it seems. Now, there are a lot of member, female members of the Liberal Party, a lot of women who happily vote Liberal, who are very proud members of the Liberal Party. Why haven't they been asked to help shape these policies in sensible ways? 
I mean, sure, there'll be some of those women who don't believe in feminism and think that this is exactly what's needed. But there are other women who are a little bit more aware of the world. Somebody like Anita Buttrose, for example, is a very, very sharp woman who has a, a bit broader view. I'd really like to know what she thinks. I know what she'd probably say publicly, but I wonder what she thinks behind closed doors, away from where other members of the media could see her. We referred to debts and deficits a little while before and that that shift in perceptions of government debt, this grand new idea that Labor debts are bad and Liberal Party debts are good, and this is a perception that's now being pushed through by the media. But I noticed in the Q&A forum on the ABC last week, many questions from the audience were along the lines of, how are we going to pay for this massive debt? And why is it being left to future generations to pay for the debt? Now, we're going to go back a little bit in history, but these are the questions that were never asked in between 1955 and 1965. And of course, I wasn't there at the time, but the Menzies government racked up massive debts and massive deficits during this time. And it was used to fund the expansion of the economy, to expand the community, expand schools, the higher education sector. And that was a good example of government deficits. And Menzies was of the Liberal Party. There seems to be a great misunderstanding of government debt within the community, and I'd, I'd extend that to political journalists who also seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding of government debt, and even some economic commentators are lacking in that area as well. And this lack of knowledge and misunderstanding of debts and deficits is an area that this government is always keen to exploit. We can go back further. Uh, Stanley Bruce, who was Prime Minister from, what, 1923 to 1929, he was uh, essentially what becomes the Liberal Party. And uh, he essentially would have been on the dry side. He preferred free trade. He wore spats and dressed like uh, Jeeves out of Jeeves and Woodhouse. And for those who are thinking, you know, why is that name familiar? He was the first prime minister to lose his seat in an election while sitting as prime minister. He lost he lost the 1929 election. He was asked many times about, and why did you borrow so much money on roads and infrastructure? And he said, because it's not fair on the generation that built it to bear all the cost when further generations will get it for essentially free. So we could get it a bit quicker and we could uh, spread that cost over a couple of generations, all of whom will be using it. And to me, that made perfect sense. The Bruce Highway, for example, which was, which was one of his, I think it's that government that builds the, the one that goes right around Australia, is still being used today, yeah, nearly 100 years later. And it took till, you know, 1948 or something to pay off. But everybody who paid for it got a use for it. With the current government, not everybody's getting a use for it, and there'll be people paying off stuff that they won't have used. And you're right, a lot of people don't understand how debt can work and how you can service a debt and how you can make a debt work in your favour. The reason we can run at a surplus while still having debt is because we should be paying off good infrastructure, good policies, good, good government work while bringing in income, mostly through taxation and 
fees and duties, etc. So that anxiety or that great concern about how is Australia going to pay for this debt, it, it is something that is permeating through the community and through the media. And I did notice that the questions that were being asked during the budget week seem to be mainly coming through from younger audiences. And, and you do feel like telling them, look, you don't have to worry about this. There's no need to get stressed out mm. about it. It's not a personal debt. It's a, mm. it's a government debt. And government debt is managed and used in a different mm -hmm. way and can be used productively, just like it was in the 1950s and the 1960s. But for me, the bigger problem is not the size of the debt or how it's going to be managed well into the future, mm, but the exactly. quality of the debt. And by 2025, as I mentioned, the level of the national government debt is going to be close to $1 trillion. The big question is, how will it be used? And my fear that it's just going to be like the mining boom that was squandered by Peter Costello in the 2000s and that this debt is possibly going to be wasted. They haven't been great at infrastructure. Uh, the, the Liberal Party recently, New South Wales did four years without starting anything. And then they tried starting it all at once and it's been a disaster. The federal government hasn't built terribly much. And there's a lot of announcement, but not a lot of money. He announces $30 million for this, $25 million for this, $50 million for that. There, there are communities still waiting for bushfire relief 12 months after the bushfires. You know, there are people who are homeless and who are living at relatives' place because their houses were burnt down. And there's no infrastructure going to the house, so they can't start rebuilding. And I know that there's that sort of hard line, oh, well, they should have paid insurance and they should have done this and they should have done that. But... I'm talking about the roads that lead to their house, the sewerage that goes to their place, the, the electricity that goes to their place, the other government infrastructure, telephone, etc., that just hasn't been done. This is where the government has absolutely failed. It hasn't delivered anything. And governments always like to get some sort of political benefit out of their budget announcements. Budgets, as I mentioned, are about economics and accounting. The budget announcement is about the politics. And in the latest news poll, there was no difference at all in the polling. It's still 51% to the Labor Party and 49% to the Liberal National Parties in two-party preferred voting options. Now, we do have to put out that usual caveat that all the polls were wrong in the 2019 election. They got it totally wrong. But it's the only mechanism that we've got to judge public opinion at this point of time. And it's been consistently at that level for the past two or three months. And the budget made no difference at all to those voting perceptions. And News Poll too is owned by News Corp, who generally favour the government. And the methodology is pretty okay. And it's no it's certainly no worse than some of the others. Uh, it might be better than a couple of them. But they do tend to be able to get figures that show a preference to the government. And uh, Mike Carlton, the journalist, suggests that, that they ring landlines, which are older people who tend to swing that way. And that's all possibly true. I'm not saying Mike Carlton's lying. I'm, I wonder how strong that factor is. It, but it could be very strong. Um, there are other ways that... They can massage the figures so that they're not long, but we're in the realms of lies, damn lies, and statistics. The fact that News Corp couldn't find a bounce suggests you know, some really interesting things. One, that as I've been fairly consistently saying, he's not 
desperately loved out there. He may be liked by some people, for sure. Two, that News Corp don't think that he is value anymore. Uh, we're getting a bit of good press for Josh Frydenberg. I wonder if he's being uh, presented as a very good alternative candidate. I don't think he is, but there is a sense in that he maybe couldn't be worse. And I think, too, that people are starting to notice what they've done wrong. They've mishandled the pandemic. There's 9,000 people stuck in India who are Australian citizens, who they're trying not to help, and who they had threatened with jail time. I think there's a growing awareness that it's not Dan Andrews and Gladys and Anna Palaszczuk and, and Stephen Marshall and Mark McGowan and Peter Gutwine who are in charge of quarantine. I think that's finally starting to sink through, that that's one of the few things in the Constitution that is absolutely clearly stated as a federal responsibility. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at Anthony Albanese's budget reply speech. The budget reply speech is one of the few times in the political cycle when all the focus is placed upon the opposition, where they can point out the errors in the government's budget and outline their future economic plans and direction for the country, if they can manage to win at the next election. Anthony Albanese's budget reply was based on the idea that the economy should be working in the interest of people, rather than the other way around, and focused on eight years of Liberal government neglect, wasted opportunities and running away from responsibilities. He also asked a question, borrowed from Ronald Reagan's election campaign in 1980, do you feel better off than you did eight years ago? He reflected on Menzies' forgotten people and ensured that the main message that people heard was that Labor is on your side. What a missed opportunity if our economy comes out the other side with nothing to show for this transformational moment, but the biggest debt and deficit of all time. If you see this pandemic as a chance to build back stronger, Labor is on your side. If you believe economic policy should deliver higher wages, Labor is on your side. If you want more security at work, Labor is on your side. If you support equality for women, Labor is on your side. If you support cheaper childcare, Labor is on your side. If you believe that older Australians deserve dignity and care in their later years, Labor is on your side. If you believe a roof over your head is up to more than market forces, Labor is on your side. And if you get the action on climate change is an opportunity for us to emerge as a renewable energy superpower and create jobs, Labor is on your side. The responsibilities for the opposition are quite different to those of the Treasurer. They don't have to make firm spending commitments, but they do have to present an air of believability and have some economic credibility in the ideas that they put forward. 
Albanese's speech spoke to core Labor values, gave a clear direction of the issues that need to be resolved, especially in hotel quarantine and the rollout of the vaccination program, social housing and infrastructure, and suggested that the government has racked up a trillion dollars of deficit without anything to show for it. All of this will largely be forgotten by the time of the next election, but did Albanese hit the right chords in his budget reply, or does he need to play a different tune? There's a sense, I think, and I alluded to this before, that Anthony can't win with the mainstream media. And this does flow through to even Labor supporters. He did, I thought, a pretty good job. I think he speaks pretty well. I don't think he's an electrifying speaker in the way that a Keating or a Whitlam was, but I don't think he's a bad speaker in the way that Scott Morrison is. Uh, and I speak as someone who's done a fair bit of professional public speaking. I know a little bit about it. And I've said before that the two best political public speakers I ever saw live in the flesh was uh, Bob Carr and, and John Howard, who are both incredibly good public speakers. Whether you agreed with them or not is a whole other debate, but in terms of how they spoke, was quite amazing. I don't think Anthony's quite to that level. Now, I haven't seen him live either. Maybe like Bob Carr and John Howard, he's much better in the flesh than he is on television. But he's certainly a good public speaker. I don't think I'll get much debate about that. Again, the media picked up the wrong things. It's not really about how much it is. It is, does it make a credible alternative to what we've been given? I think he did that too. Now, there were details that I thought, maybe not, but certainly it was a solid opposition reply to a not very good budget. Well, oppositions are just meant to put out the broad brushstrokes of what they will do or how they will behave in, mm. in government. So it was a fairly well-delivered speech. It contained all of those core Labor values. It sort of outlined who Anthony Albanese is. And, and again, his main push was that of the lost opportunity over the past eight years, lack of responsibility, bungling of the vaccination program. He talked a little bit about climate change. He, he indicated that a Labor government would outlaw wage theft. Albanese also talked about innovation. He attacked the national broadband network. He talked about aged care and social housing. During the budget reply speech, the public gallery is usually filled with their particular supporters and the biggest applause was for the National Integrity Commission and on corruption and about what the Labor Party would do if they returned to office. Now, overall, it ticked all of the boxes. As far as I can see, Albanese got it right as far as an opposition leader is concerned. He also got the budget reply speech in 2020. He got that right as well, in, in my opinion. But maybe in between he hasn't been performing as well as he could. But he also needs to carry this momentum through to the next election, which could be as early as August this year. And predictably, the media criticised Albanese. Laura Tingle from the ABC said that it was a flat delivery. And others in the media said that they were sick of hearing Albanese's log cabin story about his upbringing in a council flat and raised by a single mother. While they never seem to complain about Morrison and his stories about growing up in the eastern suburbs or building a chicken coop or going on about the Cronulla Sharks, here's one news corporation journalist saying the quiet part out aloud. 
They're making uh, those tough decisions, presumably, after they win the next election, right? And I think that the budget is a reminder, not that we necessarily needed one, that Scott Morrison has never been any sort of great ideologue, right? I mean, he's a pragmatist. He'll do what he thinks he needs to do to win an election. Um, with the Liberal Party, though, you know, they always seem to be allowed this freedom to get away with things sometimes that the Labor Party wouldn't, right? So Yes, I, you know, I wonder whose fault that would be. But it doesn't really matter who the leader of the Labor Party is or whatever they say. The conservative media will always misrepresent what they've said. And if they haven't said it, they'll just manufacture it anyway. And it seems that in this particular case, the main complaint coming from the media is that they haven't got anything from Albanese that they can dissect, misrepresent and attack, similar to mm. what they did with Bill Shorten's franking credits policies for shareholders and, you know, in that case they were making people believe that it was a retiree tax and people were going to lose their franking credits even if they didn't own shares. Now, I don't think Albanese is going to make the same mistake this time around. No, it, it, as someone pointed out that if the worst thing that happens is that a hand, uh, some retirees have to restructure their finances... It can't be a bad thing. And, of course, the whole franking credits was to do with the big shareholders in Australia, companies such as Woolworths, a lot of the banks who received billions in franking credits. Uh, it wasn't about small investors, which was, I guess, the sick and twisted genius of people like Tim Wilson. The other thing, too, there's an old joke that usually gets applied to Labor politicians where the leader of the opposition, in this case we'll say Anthony, calls a press conference down at Milson's Point. So all the press turn up and he's not there and they're wondering where he is and then someone says, hey, what's this? And there's Anthony walking across the water and he climbs up onto the jetty and says, there you are, make something bad of that and walks off. And so the Daily Telegraph has Albanese can't swim and the Sydney Morning Herald says, leader of the opposition scam, Albanese avoids the bridge toll. And that's, you know, true of, we could put that to many, many people, but it's it's generally the case that the leader of the opposition, particularly, but not always, a Labor leader of the, the opposition, is going to get that type of treatment no matter what they do. And I guess the thing is, is that you just keep pushing through and you have to remain dynamic and you have to remain charismatic, you have to remain positive and you have to remain resolute and you have to remain all of the things that Kevin Rudd did, that Golf Whitlam did, that Bob Hawke did. It's sad when you sort of think through it. There's only, there's only a very few of them. <laughs> um, but, but that's how they did it. So it's been a week where we've had the budget and the budget reply. The question is always, well, how will this affect the next election, which could be as early as August, it could be as late as May 2022? There probably will be some effect, but obviously the, the longer the gap between the budget and the election, there'll probably be less of an effect. In the previous two elections, in 2016 and 2019, the budgets those the budgets in those respective years were released just on the cusp of those elections being called. And, and this time around, there'll be quite a long gap between the budget announcement last week and the next election. And by that time, a lot of this will be forgotten in the same way as it will be hard for many people to remember the 2020 budget announcement in October last year. As far as the way that this might affect the next election, I'm not sure most in the electorate probably won't understand or remember the finer details, but the next election will still be based on those basic aspects of, of economic competence, economic management, overall management and political 
stability. And there is that old adage that governments tend to lose elections rather than oppositions winning them. Although, you know, if we look at the behaviour of the Liberal and National parties when their instability during 2013 and 2019 didn't really seem to affect them that much. They went on to win the 2019 election. So there's still a lot that can happen between now and the next election. That That's always the case in politics. But as far as how this budget and Albanese's budget reply will affect the next election, it's just a little bit hard to say at this point of time. My guess is, is that they want the sort of positive memories to remain of, oh, that was a good budget without the details coming through because, yeah, the devil's in the details. And if Labor can keep that going with, you know, well, what happened to that money? What happened to that policy? What happened to this? What happened to that? Things might start to change. The other thing we've got to remember too is that I think they've only had two budgets passed in eight years and that might only be one. Labor puts through supply and then stops everything else in the Senate. And I think that will happen this time too. But again, we'll see. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.